hip stability is a factor for every runner with a running injury. It's kind of like a never-ending runway. We can always improve it. Welcome to the Runners Connect Run to the Top podcast, where it's all about learning from the best minds in the sport so you can train smarter, stay healthy, and run faster now. And now your host, Tina Muir. Hello, this is Tina Muir. Thank you again for joining me for the latest episode of the Runners Connect Run to the Top podcast. Last week, you heard from foot and ankle specialist, Dr. Nick Campitelli. And he shared some fascinating insights about avoiding injuries and how to recover faster. I know many of you got a lot out of that, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy today's episode too. All right, be honest. How many of you think that being injured is just an inevitable part of being a runner? That it's only a matter of time until it comes to get you, and when it does, it's your turn. Although sometimes it seems like luck is not on your side. (laughs) If you could see me now, you'd see that my hand is also raised. And even after talking to my guest today, I'm still fighting that voice in my head. It's been drilled into us for years, hasn't it? My guest today is going to show you that not only is it possible, but it's possible for everyone. No matter who you are, no matter what reasons you think this wouldn't be applicable to you, it is. If you follow the five steps in this book, you will stay healthy and you will get faster. That's what we all want, right? So my guest today is Brad Beer. He is the author of You Can Run Pain-Free, which is the book we're going to be talking about today. And he is the founder of Pogo Physio, which is an award-winning physiotherapy practice. He's done over 25,000 consultations and worked with Olympic medalists and world champions. We're going to talk a lot about his book today, and it's an Amazon bestseller, so you're going to be able to see why. So today we're going to talk about why the emotional aspect of not running is often worse than the physical part of being injured. And Brad shares an inspiring story of how he actually saved someone's life by taking this part seriously. I know that's something that we often overlook and we often feel embarrassed about it, don't we? But it's so true and it's something that really needs to be thought about more often. Brad actually explains why cadence is so important and explains it in a way that we can all understand. I know there's a lot out there and it's kind of confusing, so this should actually help to truly make you understand it. The truth behind overpronation and how your hips are actually the real reason that you keep getting injured. I think a lot of you are going to enjoy that. I love the passion that Brad has and hopefully after listening to this, you will see that you do too. Brad has a special treat for five of our listeners, which I will share more about at the end of the episode. Now, that's enough rambling for me. I know you want to hear from Brad to see what he has to say. So let's go meet him. Welcome to the Run to the Top podcast, Brad. Thanks, Tina. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's great to have you. And I was just saying uh, to Brad in the uh, pre-interview that I love hearing the Australian accent. And uh, I'm sure some of you are going to love that too. And hopefully you can tell the distinction between our two accents because I get asked if I'm Australian all the time. So hopefully people can see a difference after this. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, we'll find out. Yeah, I guess so. So let's start with you and you know your background. Um, if you want to kind of go over a brief running history of yours and then we'll kind of talk about your struggles with injuries um, as a junior athlete. Yeah, certainly, Tina. Um I, I like to tell uh, tell runners that I've lived two lives in terms of running. One was my uh, junior athletic career, which was focused on junior competitive triathlon, and and the second's my now senior running career, which you know I was a, a, 
a gap of around eight years in between those. And um, and and these days, I'm a physiotherapist running a um, a busy practice and with a young family. And so uh, running is still a big part of my life. But I uh, get done what I can when I can. And um, incidentally, I'll um. My next race is in three weeks in uh, New York, the New York Marathon. Oh, oh I didn't know that. That's exciting. Oh, yeah, cool. so I'm, I'm sure you'll have some people coming up to you now if they see you. Oh, well, uh, if you're over there, guys, um, yep, pop up and, uh, and say good day. <laughs> Great. Um, okay, so you, do you want to kind of tell us a little bit about, um, you know, in the book, uh, which we will talk about in just a second, you talk about struggling with injuries um, and how you had it a lot, but you want to kind of go over some of those things and how that's kind of helped you grow and find that second running life of yours? Yeah, certainly, Tina. Um, gosh, I I grew up uh, pretty much wanting to emulate an Australian triathlete called Brad Bevan, uh, <laughs> who was uh, you know an international triathlon star in the nineties and. So I spent my uh, teenage years and high school years really uh, just dreaming of uh, a professional triathlon career. And so I uh, set about doing what that required, which was obviously you know, a lot of training. And fortunately, I, my ambition was matched with a bit of you know, natural talent in terms of endurance sports. And I quickly became aware that my swim was strong, my bike was was my best leg and believe it or not my run was my worst leg so <laughs> I uh, I never had a great passion for running funnily enough as a teenage triathlete and one of the other you know reasons why I I um you know I didn't enjoy the run like I did the other legs was because uh, I was always teener injured I, my parents graciously carted me along to the local physiotherapy practice and I think I was there almost weekly getting some sort of predominantly running injury sorted out. So, um, you know, all the common running injuries, I had them by the time I was about 18 or 19 before I then had my major uh, triathlon accident, which effectively um, was the sort of beginning of the end in terms of my professional aspirations. Mm -hmm. And do you want to tell us a bit about that with uh, you had six months uh, where you had to take it off? Like how... How did you handle that? How was that, you know, as for you as someone who, you know, aspired to be a professional triathlete, how was that taking six months off for anyone listening right now who may have had a big injury like that? Mm. Well, it was a, it's a good question, Tina. It was a bike crash with another competitor actually in the Australian junior national titles. And um, I was carted off the hospital, um, concussed and uh, unbeknownst to myself and family at the time, suffering a brain hemorrhage um, with lots of other broken bones, collarbones, scapulars, um, and, and massive skin abrasions. So um, it was a really, really serious trauma. And, uh, you know, the implications of that, I, I was 18, turning 19 at the time, and in some ways I was bulletproof and sitting in a hospital sort of thinking it was, you know, you know, everything was okay and uh, it wasn't until I realized I was in the neurosurgical lab and there were people all around me with halo braces on from, you know, their neurosurgeons' interventions, I realized that it was quite serious having a brain hemorrhage. And um, and I guess, Tina, the, the physical pain was one thing and I guess many listeners will actually resonate with this, but what actually I think is a bigger problem and certainly I unpack this in research in the book, You Can Run Pain-Free, was that you know, injuries are more than skin deep. And um, and for me, I actually slid into clinical depression off the back of this triathlon crash and actually then developed suicidal tendencies for, um, you know, on the back of what I felt like was a 
loss of loss of identity. Um, so um, it's funny now as a professional consulting injured runners, I often ask them how the injury is making them feel, and it's it's amazing when you just stop and pause the outpouring of emotion that often follows that question. Oh, absolutely. And uh, when you were just saying that, I mean, I think I'm sure a lot of people were nodding their head along. And I, I remember in college when I had a big injury and that exactly what you said, the loss of identity. And I've talked in the past on the podcast about how um, it was, it's almost as if, um, you know, you become like I, I've, I've said before that I became the runner named Tina rather than Tina the runner. And so when that runner title was taken out you feel you know what do I have to offer the world and it's something that's not talked about enough um, as you mentioned and I I kind of feel jealous of it your uh, clients that they actually get to have someone like you who does realize that but let's talk about that kind of embarrassment um, that you you know spoke about in the book which I will mention now uh, called you can run pain-free so we will be talking about things Brad wrote about in the book and I'll give you um some information on how to get a hold of that uh, in later in the show. But if you want to kind of talk about the embarrassment, um, as most of us kind of feel like we're the only one that has that, and it's you know embarrassing to admit that running is so important to us. Yeah, it's it's funny, isn't it, Tina? Um, a common statement I get in the physiotherapy you know consultation room is, you know, but it's not, you know, I know someone who's suffering a uh, you know some sort of life threatening illness, or there's often these comparisons made with you know, I guess people bringing perspective around it. But as I like to sort of, uh, you know, coach my physio clients around is that, well, yes, it's it might be that there's other greater things in the world that there always will be, but is this important to you? And when we break it down, it absolutely is. And that's for a myriad of reasons, you know, it's whether it's fitness, stress relief, cardiovascular health, um, or just, you know, highly anxious people that go for a run and you know have more clarity for the rest of the day and and that's not even touching on the as you know we as you'd be aware and, and many of your listeners the massive bounty of scientific research which validates the endless health benefits of running so you know there's the psychological aspects there's obviously the physiological aspects and and um, everything that goes with that do you have any thoughts on why I mean, you said about, you know, there's so much comparison. Do you think that's the main reason we kind of feel like embarrassed to admit that, you know, we're so emotionally low or down because of because of running? Yeah, I, I do think there's a bit of that. It's it's kind of like, well, what am I doing moping around with my, you know, head down when it's I, all I, I'm not able to run. That's all it is. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's what that means to that individual. And, you know, running is you know, it's a big part of so many people's lives. And, uh, I think it's just a dangerous slippery slope and we start to, um, try and, uh, I guess hide beneath the real, uh, impact it's having on us psychologically. And I mean, we only need to ask our partners or significant others, <laughs> you know, what the reality is of an injury and they'll, they'll say, Hey, it's not physical. It's psychological. <laughs> the whole family feels it. And, and Tina, if I may if just share a little story, of which course. I think yeah, great. really brings, um, the beauty around this this topic is uh, actually a gentleman who I reference in in the book, um, who was one of the real catalysts for me to sit down and put pen to paper was a runner called Mark and uh, Tina Mark had actually travelled over an hour and a half to see me at the physio practice on the recommendation of a friend and Mark presented with a fairly benign sort of sorry fairly commonplace ankle injury that just hadn't gotten right and it had stopped Mark from getting back to competing in a half marathon and 
as I do with every patient, I ask Mark, okay, Mark, this is what's happening. How's it making you feel? And Mark at the time was a 52-year-old male who, you know, had a fairly um, a high level, you know, role in society with his job and in a family of many kids. And Mark sat there and just shed tears. And he said to me, I can't believe I'm crying. And I said, Mark, it's okay. Just let it out. I can understand. And I empathize with what's going on. And, and, and the interesting thing about this story, um, Tina, is yes, we got Mark back to running half marathons, but you know, it wasn't until two and a half years later when I got a phone call from his son, who was also a patient of mine, um, saying that, oh, Brad, my dad is actually in hospital in Brisbane. He's just had a quadruple bypass. Um, and Mark had actually suffered a massive heart attack. And, uh, you know, interestingly, it was his um, cardiac um, surgeons and cardiologists that actually credited Mark's running fitness with the very thing that saved his life. He's, wow. he's now got 25% cardiac function, just ran the Paris Marathon this year. And, um, you know, I look back and think, wow, if I had have just treated Mark as a typical ankle injury and maybe not gone the extra mile to make sure he got back to injury-free running consistently, then perhaps that running fitness wouldn't have been there. So there's always that perspective that, yes, it might be an ankle injury or a sore knee or an Achilles, but we're talking about running for people's lives, really, <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. not just that ankle. Yeah, wow. Thank you for sharing that. I, I did. I found that very uh, inspiring in the book, but I'm glad you decided to share that one with the with the readers. And um, I'm guessing, you know, your injury history that going through that and knowing what that feels like that has made you a better physio or uh, physical therapist, I guess would be the word uh, we'd use in America. Um, but it's kind of helped you to see that perspective that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise. But let's kind of look at that um, in the book. You know, you talk about how um, anyone and everyone can run pain-free and I'm sure quite a few people are you know saying oh you know whatever I I can't um and I know in particular my family my um my sister who hopefully is not going to kill me for saying this she has a little injury right now and she's uh, not able to run and you know my parents like oh well you know she has she has an infused vertebrae so she just isn't meant to run and I'm like no that isn't true like she is she's got a problem with her foot it's nothing to do with her back um or maybe it is but you know so what would you like to say to people and to my parents listening uh who think that anyone you know if you run far enough or you run long enough you're going to get injured it's inevitable there's nothing you can do yeah certainly Tina and um oh gosh it is certainly a um a real passion of mine to try and dispel that what is actually just a myth. Um, and it's, there's no substantiation to that. Um, it's, I think it's just a, you know, a, a myth that's just passed from gener generation to generation, just as the myth of, you know, running will wear out your knees. It's the same sort of kettle of fish. And, um, the reality is that, you know, in my experience, both as a, as a runner, um, as a triathlete formerly, and as a physiotherapist who's looked after thousands of runners over the last nine to 10 years, everyone can enjoy injury-free running. But the caveat to that is that the five keys or the five steps that I share in, in the book, they need to be in operation and ticked off in terms of a checklist at any given time for the runner to experience and enjoy that injury-free running. And the trick is most runners are unaware of what these five things are and some runners 
aren't necessarily prepared or committed because it's not a high enough priority for them to ensure that those five things remain in place. So it is absolutely possible for everyone to enjoy it. It's just a matter of whether it's a high enough priority that they would do the things they need to to, to go out and enjoy it. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought that up as well because I think that's something that um, is important because many people thinking, oh, great, you know, it's possible. Tell me how, tell me how. But when they look at it, oh, I have to do all that. Well, then, like you said, if it's not a high enough priority, then, you know, you are risking it by letting one of those or a few of those factors go. And I just want to mention um, one person before we do move on as an example of this, uh, my good friend uh, who's actually a Runners Connect coach, Sarah Crouch. Um, she She runs 130 miles a week. And she's never taken more than four days off because of a physical injury. And so, you know, she's a prime example of someone, it can be done. And, um, you know, for running that amount of mileage and she, you know, that she's perfect example. So before we dive into the five steps, I just want to, I wanted you to uh, explain this as I found it particularly interesting and runners love analogies. Could you kind of explain your um, runners, your insurance policy uh, analogy as I thought people would like that? In in terms of injuries, uh, Tina. Yeah, just like uh, how how yeah how it's how it's like a taking out an insurance policy. Yeah, well, it's it's a term that I uh, I use regularly um, in the treatment room and also out running with friends and other runners here in Australia. And that's you know the insurance policy is the things that your body, Tina, or your sister's body, or your friend who you just referenced, Runners Connect coach Sarah you know, need to do to keep you out there and injury free. And so insurance policy can be a series of strength-based exercises that are specific for your body, uh, Tina, as an example, or they may be some, you know, important, you know, stretches. Um, Insurance policy also can include things like the footwear you've got, the the technique that you're using, and obviously your training program. So, you know, people tend to appreciate this, but the simplicity of that notion. And, you know, when we rehabilitate runners or any athlete for that matter, I, I do like to make the, the delineation of, you know, what are you trying to get done? Are you trying to simply get out of pain or are you trying to return to your physical best? Because they're two very, very, very different journeys. And fortunately, the bulk of my work is with athletes who are highly motivated. So normally we're going down that second route of complete rehabilitation, which is really the insurance policy. But it's very distinct from, you know, getting out of pain. The absence of pain is a poor indicator in terms of rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, as you mentioned in the book, do tend to, you know, suffer from something again because they don't obviously treat the source of the problem. So um, just bef- one more thing before we move on. You did talk about um, running injuries are rarely one single factor but do you think it's just out of ease that we try and you know pick one thing and say it must have been that or do you think there's another reason why we trying to try to make it very simple when it's usually not yeah tina this is is a great question um you know uh i think that we all aspire to simplicity we're generally all got you know a lot going on in our world these days and the notion that it's this one little factor that if that can be pushed or prodded or ticked or changed, i.e. running shoes, then yeah. everything will become okay. And um, the reality is uh, in over you know 25,000 physio consults, not all with runners over the years, but a large portion of those, 
Um, I don't think I've ever met one patient whose injury causation is due to one sole factor. Rather, it's normally this you know, um, analogy I like to make of it's like baking a cake. If you put enough of this in with enough of that in the right environment, then, you know, an injury will ensue in time. So, you know, in terms of the insurance policy back on that, it's a matter of making sure all the ingredients or the causative or contributing factors of that injury are one, identified and two, corrected if you're truly going to take out insurance and minimise the chance of this this thing ever, you know, coming back. Mm-hmm. Yep, great. Thank you for some of that. I, I'm loving these analogies and you used quite a few of them in the book. I think they really make it easy to understand. So let's briefly go over the five steps and then I kind of want to dive into them a bit more. So could you just share what the five are for our listeners? Yeah, certainly, Tina. The, the five steps, the headlines are, the first step is... Um, is uh, identifying your body type or understanding your running body. And uh, I guess we can break these down as we go. Yeah, sure. Okay, great. The, the sec- if that works for you. The mm-hmm. second step is um, is running with great technique, and we can unpack that. The third is navigating the footwear maze, so making sure the runner is in appropriate footwear. The fourth is uh, in the import- what I call the importance of hip stability, which um, we can unpack. And the fifth is... The one that holds it all together, which is the <laughs> arguably the most challenging, and that's the power of rest, which comes, you know, in another parlance, training volume, training errors, etc. Yep, yep, and I, I'd love to kind of dive into each of these. We, obviously, we can't go into them too deep because uh, we don't want to take up four hours of your time. But this <laughs> is uh, the book again called "You Can Run Pain Free." I will put a link to in the show notes. So if you do want to. By it, which I highly would recommend it. I, I was telling Brad uh, before that I've been um, reading it. I put notes all over it and you're going to love it. So you can, I'll put a link to that in the show notes at runnersconnect.net forward slash RC80. So let's start with the first one. So you talked about um, people not being in despair if, you know, in your words, the gene pool appears to have been unkind, um, you know, in other areas. But Explain how that relates to everyone being able to run pain and injury free. Yes, yeah, certainly that is a uh, a little uh, little line in the book, um, <laughs> Tina. So well, 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 highlighted there. And good <laughs> on you for getting physical with the book. I think anyone reading it that's a runner, you know, we like to get out and move. So you know, I encourage people to draw all over it, write on it. Um, best way to interact with it. But that particular um, phrase really points to. The fact, Tina, that a lot of runners uh, who are injured or people looking on from the sidelines, such as you know the example you shared, possibly your your parents with your sister, um, sometimes the tendency is just to sort of, I guess, you know, denounce any responsibility in some ways by just saying, "Well, I'm just not built to run. I'm yeah. I'm not built to be a runner," and uh, and that's really not true at all. Everyone can enjoy injury-free running. And so certainly we recognize and science points to this and anyone with an astute eye observing, you know, the best runners in the world would recognize this, that there are certain characteristics that the best runners in the world have. Mm -hmm. You know, they have, um, you know, very lean bodies, no surprises there. They're pretty much composed of just tendons and skeleton. There's normally not a lot of muscle mass on these elite distance runners they've actually got very small circumferences around their ankles um the smaller the better um they've got typically small pelvises and long leg to torso ratios amongst many things and you know um 
most of us don't have those physical attributes. Um, <laughs> and yet it shouldn't stop us or deter us from trying to fulfill our own running potential, which is absolutely possible. So even if the genetic pool seems to have been less than kind for anyone aspiring to run their best, don't despair. The five steps will really help injury-proof your body so you can explore your potential. Yep, great. And uh, so one of the aspects of, you know, kind of your running makeup, you talked about uh, your mobility status and, uh, you know, how you can be hyper or hypo-flexible. Do you want to kind of explain that and how that can actually affect the way that you approach your running? Yeah, Tina, you are very well researched. <laughs> I told you I did. When uh, I first spoke to Brad, uh, when we were setting up this interview, I told him I was going to really, really think about these questions, and I, I, I always do. <laughs> it's, well, it's outstanding. Um, certainly, the um, this comes under this first step, you know, um, of, of people identifying their running body type. And, you know, the, one of the key things that uh, I teach physiotherapists that work alongside me in the practice here in Australia, I certainly – you know, assessing every injured runner in the in the physio rooms and or physical therapy rooms is to identify their natural mobility status or their genetic mobility status. And that sounds like a mouthful, but all it really means is how how floppy and you know stretchy are you around your joints. And that's got a large genetic predisposition um, to it. So I, I simplify it, Tina and You've read this, but I simplified into three categories. Everyone will either be one of three things, a flippy, floppy, or stiffy. <laughs> and it normally brings a smile to most, most people's face because they have a bit of a chuckle. But a stiffy is someone who doesn't have a lot of natural mobility around their, um, around their joints. Uh, and this has connotations to what that runner will need to do to look after their body and how they will also run. Um, a flippy is someone that isn't really very stiff or – very mobile or flexible naturally, whereas on the other end of the spectrum to the stiffy, you've got the floppies, and they genetically have massive ranges of motion around their joints. Probably the kids that used to put their, you know, legs over their head in the in the playground and still count <laughs> as adults. And just like the stiffy, these um, these runners will have um, certain ways that they move and certain tendencies in how they use their body. Yeah, exactly. And again, that's something in the book he, he does go into in detail and he will be able to, you will be able to determine which one of those you are and how to kind of, how that should affect your training. Um, and you talked about, you know, the importance of a running screening test. Um, and, uh, you know, many runners uh, would like to, you know, do something like this, um, but you kind of warned against, if possible, doing it at home. Uh, but what suggestions do you have for those who, you know, aren't in, in Australia, number one, or if they don't have anywhere, anywhere nearby, you know, maybe they're in a country that doesn't even have anything like this, what would you suggest? <clears throat> Tina, yeah, great question. Um, in the back of the book's actually an appendix, the running screening, and it lists all the tests. And then as an accompaniment to that, there's, um, there's a link in the book to um, – uh, a website which uh, has the running screening video demonstrated so me demonstrating so worst case if someone can't <clears throat> you know what's been I've been getting great feedback on is people taking the book to um, therapists worldwide and having the therapist complete the table in the back of the book and oh, okay, help the great. runner identify what their um you know what the, the bits of their running body are that might need correcting or addressing 
So um, so those two things will help runners, no matter where they are, Tina, be able to um, get a good gauge of their running body. And we're not just talking about mobility status. We're also talking about, you know, any adverse patterns of tightness, you know, classically with runners, it's tight quads and hamstrings and, you know, various other bits. And, and that's not just related to the mobility status we discussed because you can still be a hypermobile runner, which I am, mm-hmm. um, and still have very tight hamstrings, which I do. <laughs> um, so there's a little bit, um, a few levels there that we unpack in the book as to, um, you know, understanding the running body. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay. Yep. That's definitely helpful because I, I know we have talked about, um, you know, how to improve, how to kind of assess the way your body is and you, you, mostly your running form, which you're going to talk about in a second. But um, I, I know we have had some comments that, you know, I don't I don't have access to that. So this is great that in the book you do have that. Um, and then you do talk about a frame weight, but I'm going to just encourage everyone again to read the book for that part. It's kind of a bit difficult to go into that um, without actually, you know, spending the whole interview on it. So I'd like to kind of move on to one that uh, I think people are very interested in, which of course is running form. Um, and uh, let's, as you talked about this quite a lot in the book, and I know this is something runners are very interested in. Let's talk about cadence. Um, yes. Do you want to kind of explain what that is for people who may have heard that word thrown around but don't uh, quite understand it? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a it's a big topic, isn't it, out there in the running community? And it's it's a, a welcome topic for the benefits it can bring. You know, it's great that there's an awareness around this. Tina, um, I like just to educate runners that uh, cadence is simply um, for those that do spin classes in a gym or ride a bike, the amount of revolutions per minute um, of the legs. So in runners' context, that's the number of foot strikes per minute uh, that, you, that you have. And uh, I like to keep it really simple so whilst many um you know industry voices will talk about cadence including both feet so the number of foot contacts for both feet inside a minute i i like just to halve that and just talk about one foot because what one foot does the other foot's doing inevitably and the numbers are smaller and a bit more palatable Mm -hmm. yep and uh can you kind of explain why uh you you've said about the 90 uh per foot per minute um and but Explain, I really struggled with this about a year ago when I started trying to change my cadence and I have significantly reduced it. But how do you get your head around, you know, it's easy for us to think you stride out. People, you see these, uh, you know, elite runners and their strides are so long and, you know, people think they want to like bound along. And how do you get your head around, um, you know, more steps are actually better for you in most cases than, you know, less longer steps, if that makes sense. Absolutely makes sense. And Tina, it's a, it's a very insightful comment and um, you're, you're spot on. I, I think we default as observers of these elite runners to often trying to, you know, we've all said it at some point, I'm sure in our running lives, I'm going to catch that person in front, whether it's the school cross country or the local <laughs> five or 10 K road race, I'm going to stride out. And, um, and the best thinking around it is that, yes, it's just based on the fact that we watch, you know, these amazing elite runners and, you know, they are taking these impossibly long strides. However, we often forget, or we, I think we always forget that they're moving at 20k an hour plus typically, whatever we're watching, whether it's a marathon or faster for shorter distances. And um, and we're typically not. <laughs> and so um, they're naturally going to have much greater, you know, 
distance per step than we will at slower speeds. But the one constant, whether we're running it, you know, um, you know, obviously I'm here in Australia, so um, the system, you know, we talk about is five minute K pace or three minute K pace, or you know, US obviously has different terminology, but is that the one constant is that foot contact time, the time that the foot is on the ground needs to be very minimal. And so um, these elite runners will always have a, a cadence of close or just over 90 steps per minute on each leg. And that's irrespective of their speed. And so I think that the problem is that too many people overanalyze it and they think, well, if I've got to have 90 steps per minute, how can I ever run faster? How can the person next to me run faster? But there's a whole bunch of other factors that, that derive speed, such as our natural aerobic capacity, our VO2 max and all these other factors. But I, I encourage runners, keep it simple. Um, trust the science that 90 steps works. Don't overthink it. And um, and what happens when the, the cadence is less than 90, Tina, is that the foot is typically landing in a position out in front of the body, which is putting these braking forces on. So in, in essence, every step that the runner takes, they then have to generate this momentum to try and come back and against that braking force. So when the foot lands under the body at 90 steps a minute, the runner you know propels themselves forwards faster and with a lot less loads on their lower limbs. Oh, absolutely. And uh, anyone who's listened for a while knows that I went to uh, the UVA speed clinic and that's something I've been working on um, along with, as you mentioned, 75% of runners. Was that correct? Overstride? Oh, it's huge. Yes. Yeah. It's it's the bulk of bulk of runners. I, I actually look back at my junior running triathlon career, which I mentioned that was my weak leg of the, the three legs of triathlon. And I look at the PBs that I used to have as a you know, three times a day trained junior athlete and came back and here I am in my 30s now and I'm still discovering my personal bests and, and they're much quicker than I ever did as a, as a teenager. And one of the key key factors is that I'm aware of my running technique. I implement what I teach, obviously, and mm-hmm. um, and, and it's a huge difference. We're talking about, a, you know, two, three minutes over 5Ks as someone in my 30s. So it's, it can be really significant. Absolutely. And you uh – mentioned in the book about a um a study that you found that uh had you know this increase in cadence resulted in huge reductions in loading of the hips and the knees and uh we we know that most injuries are somehow related to one of those joints so it kind of explains the importance of it but what would you like to say to people who think okay well surely the more the better so what about if I do 100 strides per minute is there like a too far with this yeah, it is. It's absolutely a um, great question, Tina. It's absolutely a, you know, it's a bit like uh, the arousal state before a race, you know, the good old inverted U that so mm-hmm. many of us have seen. And that's if you're asleep on the start line, it won't help your performance. And if on the other end of the spectrum, you're so overly anxious and, you know, nervous, you'll be vomiting on the side of the road and that won't help your performance. But if you're somewhere in between, you'll be in that sweet spot. And it's a bit mm-hmm. like that with with cadence it, it actually gets physiologically impossible to get anywhere near more than sort of 95 plus steps in per minute um, on each leg it's just physically impossible no matter what the height the size the weight of the runner so there is that sort of natural cap um, interestingly I um, you know I'm a running geek I run around with counting people's steps here in Australia and um, you know some of Australia's best running talent over the years I've had the privilege of running with at different times and I've counted their steps and 
Uh, same with some of the triathletes, and they're all around ninety. It's it's fascinating. Do you tell them when you uh, when you? Oh, I have the, have the, have occasionally. Uh, one that I didn't tell <laughs> was Steve Monaghetti, who was one of our great oh, wow. exports, and um, and I yeah. followed Steve for my first marathon actually here on the Gold Coast for the whole or thirty nine k's of the uh, of the race before I fell off the back. He was a pace setter; he wasn't racing flat out. But I passed the time, Tina, by counting Steve's steps, and uh, he was pretty much eighty nine ninety the whole way. <laughs> Wow, that's great. And I do want to just say to anyone who is trying to change their cadence, as I did spend a year doing it, and I'm still working on it, it is going to feel uncomfortable, it is going to be hard work. And you know, I still feel like I'm shuffling. And this is a year later. So it does take some time, but it it does make huge, huge differences. And um, I think those of you who follow my professional career as I've been going, I, I had a huge improvement a few days ago, uh, with a race and that kind of showed that it had come together. Um, so one more thing I wanted to ask you about running technique. Um, you said about, you know, how you explained how to, uh, run well, what good technique is, but what about, well, this is just a question I'm curious about. I'm not sure if you're, what you're going to, you know, think of the question, but you said about good form with your arms, but, um, what do you say to people who say, well, the arms are just a counterbalance for your lower leg weaknesses. Like, can you really correct your arms or is it just, they are like balancing out everything else? Geez, Tina, these are great questions. Um, That's something I was just curious about myself because I know my arms and my are all over the place sometimes. Well, <laughs> it's it's funny. I think keeping it sort of um, you know condensed um, on the call would a couple of key points would be there are a few mistakes that some people you know so that many runners unfortunately make with their arms and they do allow them to at times cross the midline of their body which then brings this rotation force around the joints and it's also wasted energy, um, sideways type energy that, you know, is um, working against the runner. So not allowing the arms to cross the midline of the body. Two other classic mistakes that I, um, I see, Tina, are allowing the shoulders to eat the ears, so carrying the shoulders mm-hmm. too high and, and that has effects on ability to breathe, relax, um, whole whole lot of manifestations, and then the other thing would be allowing the angle of the arm or the elbow to be too open. Um, typically, that creates extra torque or rotation forces around the runner's trunk as well. So, but in, what's funny is you can pick out any Olympic marathon over the years and watch some of the techniques, and you will see these three common arm mistakes being made by some of the best runners in the world. So. You know, there's certain patterns that, you know, from a um, biomechanical point of view, we know aren't necessarily advantageous, but then there's always the exceptions to the rules. But by and large, you know, the the listeners will benefit from not making those three mistakes. And and the arms aren't just counterbalances. It's, you know, there is a function for them. And it's a little test if, if, you know, the listeners want to go and test this out on the next run. And you know, the faster you pump your arms, the quicker your legs are going to have to follow. Oh, so, you know, in races where I'm absolutely spent, I'll sometimes shift from counting my foot strikes to counting my arm swings like I'm in a boxing match just so I can <laughs> sort of give my, my brain a bit of a chance to defer some of the pain from the legs. And, yep, yeah. guaranteed, if you're pumping your arms, your legs are following. So there's certainly Especially a role for generating health. propulsion. Yeah, no, great. And uh, okay, so next I want to kind of combine a little bit two of the steps just because I want to get through all of them and I don't want us to run out of time. But 
um, we talk, you talked about overpronation um, and it's kind of not what it seems. Uh, so could you explain that as that word has just been misused over the over recent years oh goodness absolutely <laughs> i'll try and be brief tina so cut me off if i uh, <laughs> if i get on my soapbox yeah <laughs> um tina pronation is not a bad thing it's a uh it's a natural movement that the body must go through in order to one generate propulsion and two dissipate forces where pronation has copped the bad rap is that um yes over pronation which has two categories. Overpronation can denote too much pronation, so too much rolling in of the foot in terms of quantity, and also too fast or too great a rate of dropping of the foot arch. That's what overpronation means. And through the late 80s, early 90s, even into the late 90s, the medical science world sort of jumped to, um, I guess, off the back of a few studies to this conclusion that all pronation must be stamped out and, um, you know, by putting anti-pronation devices in shoes and sorts of things. And there is a role for that for many runners, particularly the hypermobile runners who have very lax joints. However, um, we don't want to stop and eradicate pronation because we'd end up with actually even a higher injury running rate, in, running injury incidents than what we see these days. Hmm, interesting. And so from that, you kind of uh, explained that hips are key to, you know, uh, this preventing overpronation and stabilizing, stabilizing things. And so that's how I wanted to combine the two here. If you could kind of explain, uh, you said about running being a single leg sport, what does that mean? And just how important are our hips and this like a stable hip in running pain and injury free? It is vital, Tina, and hence why it made the top five keys And um, in terms of putting this framework for the book together when I actually sat back and thought about, you know, what are the key things that I've discovered over the years are the glue, the insurance policy that helps runners stay out there injury-free. Hip stability is a factor for every runner with a running injury. Typically, I, I, I can't recall, even with some of the elite athletes, um, over the years where hip stability hasn't been a factor. It's kind of like a never-ending runway. We can always improve it to the next level, but the implications of a hip or hip muscles that don't stabilize or support the runner's body enough are that, as you said, Tina, it's a single-leg sport, so we'll bound from leg to leg. And on each step, the hips, if the muscles aren't strong enough, will collapse, and the collapsing of the pelvis has two effects. One, it slows us down, and typically we're all trying to run faster. And two, it increases the loading on the legs. So whether it's the Achilles tendon, the foot, the knee, the hip, the lower back, the shins, um, that collapsing of the pelvis results in more contact time with the ground and therefore more forces through the legs. So um, it's uh, something that absolutely must be, uh, one, assessed and two, identified and three, corrected. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, you, you go into this in great detail in the book. And uh, for anyone who has had, you know, some a physio or physical therapist say, you know, you're not using your glutes or you have had, you know, a string of injuries, this, this book really will help you to kind of uh, figure out if your hips are the cause of this and if you, if what can happen if you actually do 
get it taken care of. I know that's made a huge difference for me. I loved, by the way, that you did reference uh, Dan Lieberman in your uh, in your research, and I'm not sure if you know or anyone listening, it was one of the earlier ones in the year, but we did interview him, and it was a great interview, uh, which you can find at runnersconnect.net forward slash rc47. So uh, that was actually interesting to see that you did reference him because he's such a you know pioneer within this research. Absolutely. Um, so kind of related to him, let's look at shoes. Yep. Um, and, you know, many runners think that they've got to find the best shoe, but you kind of said you don't have to look for the perfect running shoe, just kind of for an area of running shoes. So could you kind of explain what that means? Yeah, thanks, Tina. Um, just on Daniel Lieberman, actually, I had the privilege of meeting him at a uh, physio conference in Australia a couple oh, of years ago and you know, I thought it was quite quite novel uh Daniel threw out to the uh the delegates of the physio conference it was Australia's uh annual physiotherapy sorry every two years we hold it conference and he said I'll be going for a run to you know the next morning and um everyone's welcome I won't be running in shoes around the streets of Brisbane um but you can and so um he's quite a quite a character and obviously he's oh yeah you know, he's credited with so much of um of what we uh now practice and know today but oh, but um Tina I think in terms of answering your question many runners many listeners would identify with the notion that all they need is that perfect pair of shoes that one pair of shoes and uh, often it's viewed as the magic bullet or the golden, you know, solution to all their running injuries and ills. And, um, you know, that's not the case. There's normally more than one shoe for each runner that would absolutely, you know, uh, serve them well with their running um, goals. However, um, it's being able to identify what works for the runner. And, and that's why in the book I sort of unpack the you know, the six considerations around um, what you should be considering when you go to buy a pair of shoes. Yeah, yeah. And they were very, it was very helpful. And I, I really enjoyed that section, actually. And then you, can you just go over how runners should not be jumping from one extreme to the next when it comes to shoes, especially when going down to lighter shoes? Uh, you mentioned a transition period of 18 to 24 months, which, you know, people listening may be like, what? But do you want to explain why it is important to take so long to do that transition? Yeah, Tina, it's it, it, a transition is required and many people get excited about going to a lighter pair of shoes. And let's not hide the fact that lighter shoes make a big difference for performance. You know, I, I reference in the book that it's 0 0.06 seconds uh, per 100 grams of shoe weight that you will will save off every mile of running in terms of lighter shoes. So lighter shoes matter. Um, and a lot of runners get excited and go from a heavier shoe to a very light shoe too quickly. And one of the results is typically sore calves, calf injuries, or sore Achilles tendons. Um, and so the, the transition period is required to you know, ease the body into getting used to using the calf muscles, all that, you know, the Achilles tendon more, because typically lighter shoes – have a, a lower pitch or height of the heel in simple terms. And the lower you drop there, the more you're starting to rely on the uh, calf and Achilles as a propulsive mechanism. And you don't want to overwhelm it and develop an Achilles tendon injury or a calf injury because, you know, unfortunately they can sometimes take time or mostly take time to resolve. Oh, definitely. I think many people listening, I know I've been through both of those. <laughs> They're not yeah. fun. Um, and then you, you said about um, the – uh, difference per mile um, in 
and you said about in the book uh, using different racing shoes as to your training shoes is that the primary reason for that you wanted people to kind of see that if they do train in a heavier shoe when you race in the lighter shoe it's going to you know save you energy yeah certainly it will one it will feel better you know come race day you put something on light and you know and um on your feet and it's just a psychological boost that oh gosh i feel good um Mm -hmm. and uh and that's really the key reason but there's also interestingly some some research that points to runners mixing their shoes up in terms of weight and profile of the shoe heel drop hitch um stiffnesses etc in terms of reducing injuries as well so so there's a real case for um, for keeping your body guessing, if you like. It also challenges the body in mm-hmm. terms of um, making sure it doesn't get lazy with its motor patterns or way of doing things. Yeah, I'll, and I feel like when I put those uh, racing shoes on, I just feel fast. I feel good as well. It's, it's a nice like psychological boost as well. Absolutely. Well, um, you are fast, Tina. So the, <laughs> thank you. Sometimes. <laughs> I have a lot of very slow days as well, which actually perfect transition point. <laughs> Uh, to the most important, or con- uh, arguably the most important one, of rest. Um, so do you want to co- uh, briefly explain the five most common mistakes you see when it comes to rest? Oh, Tina, I can do that, absolutely. But I must get the elephant out of the room and say that I am not, uh, I am like any runner with this one. Um, <laughs> I am not sitting here on some, um, you know, some soapbox, you know, telling everyone to do it you know, do it perfectly. An an example is um, I somewhat embarrassingly after this book was released this year and went on to experience success in terms of its uh, distribution, I uh, had to put out on social media that I was uh, out of my local marathon due to a a stress reaction of my femur, which I'd uh, I'd developed off the back of a PB and a half marathon race here in Australia. And um, looking back, it was a simple error of just putting one extra run in with some friends that was meant to be steady, but when you put guys together in a in a forest in a trail run, uh, it turned into a race. So it was a matter of me including four back-to-back runs on four weeks, um, one run a week. It was a bit too fast. It was enough to tip me over this, you know, happy place of not being injured. So, so you're saying it was one factor that caused it, huh? Well, um, <laughs> you know, it's funny in, in terms of. Uh, I'm just giving it a hard time. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> arguably, I should have been doing more um, hip stability as well at the time. But, um, <laughs> but it's an example of look, even me authoring this book, oh, yes. I, I can get it wrong. So I just want everyone to recognise. I understand the psychology of training, and you know. Runners are a unique people. We we love it, and um, obviously we get a lot of benefits from it. So it's often very hard to take rest. However, mm-hmm. if we don't rest, um, and rest, you know, includes taking days off. It includes easy sessions. It includes you know periodized training programs, easy weeks, months, etc. Then we are all kidding ourselves if we don't think we're setting ourselves up for you know for injury. So um. So the, the common mistakes are, you know, uh, skipping a uh, – replacing a rest session for a hard session, which was the one I made um, in, in terms mm-hmm. of my injury this year. Um, re- not having a rest day. I, uh, I, a friend of mine here in Australia got quite excited about setting a PB in the marathon, um, the Melbourne Marathon, and set about on a running streak, which was running every day for two years. and. All was going well for this gentleman until, you know, probably 200 days into it and uh, his body just started to break down and two years mm-hmm. on, he's now only just starting to 
find his way back. So, so you know, not taking that rest days is a major me. problem. Sorry, Tina, I cut you off. Sorry, no, I, I, I was interrupting. I said we hear that quite often where, you know, you have a good race and you don't you almost don't want to get going. You don't want to stop or you have a bad race and you kind of want to redeem yourself. So, you you know, you're say, what you're saying is important there. Either way, your body still needs that rest, especially after a marathon. Yeah, absolutely. And um, many people get excited after a, a good race and want to keep pushing harder. So that's one of the other mistakes is not allowing the body time to recover, particularly after the longer races, you know, half marathons, marathons. There's a phys- physical tax on the body. And one of the components of that is actually neural or neurological fatigue. And um, anyone that you know, has had a had a um, a marathon or a hard half marathon. I think would identify if they actually reflect that. Um, it's often two three days later where, you know, you're on a bit of a high the day after, and then yes, you've got the DOMS, the sore muscles two days later at its worst. However, um, I know personally, I neurologically and just I just feel flat and fatigued, and so. You know, the, the overzealous runner that doesn't heed those signs will push on and try and pump out fast times in training and just unfortunately often set up a cascade of negative effects in terms of their health and their, you know, their body as well. Yeah, definitely. And uh, um, there's obviously a lot more to this, um, which, you know, I would encourage you to read it uh, once again. But one more thing about rest. Um, you said about how many runners get sick the rate, uh, the week of their important race. Do you want to explain why that is? Yeah, absolutely. Because I'm sure that's happened to a lot of us. It'd, it'd be lovely in podcast land if we could have a show of hands of how many people uh, this speaks to. Right? <laughs> um, but yeah. um, typically, uh, it's funny. I, I saw a great friend of mine just yesterday in the, the physio treatment room who's getting ready for a, hopefully a PB in the Melbourne Marathon here in Australia in, um, in the month of October. And um, and he said, oh, all's well, no no, no problems, give me a bit of a, a panel beating before the race with my body, uh, but I've got a tickle in my throat. <laughs> and so, um, you know, when we're pushing in training week after week, trying to find our best performance, uh, the body can get into a state of what, you know, we call immunosuppression. And um, basically, it just means the immune system's a bit, a bit flat, Tina, and susceptible to picking mm-hmm. up fairly commonplace little bugs whether that's an upper respiratory tract infection or a hopefully not but a virus which can have you know more long-lasting sinister effects so not uncommon for um for the body to uh, unfortunately experience these things you know leading directly into an event is there a way of preventing that would you have any suggestions for people yeah great certainly i mean tapering is a big topic and i do unpack that in the book in detail, but trying to get a taper right um, can be one component. Sleep is a critical component. Um, you know, uh, leading into New York in three weeks, I'm doing my earnest to, to try and develop a, a pretty decent sleep pattern. Um, so, you know, missing hours of sleep has really deleterious effects on the immune system and, and hormones and a whole cascade of things. So getting sleep right and and there's other little tricks and ninja tips, Tina, like, you know, increasing typically most endurance athletes are benefit from, you know, supplementation with things like zinc and, you know, it's a whole nother, another field talking about, you know, nutritional support. But stick to the basics first and foremost, you know, taper your training, sleep well, obviously eat and drink well and um, you'll be giving yourself the best shot. Yeah, 
Mm-hmm. Great, great. And, um, you know, I'm glad you did mention uh, sleep because that is so important. And, uh, you know, it's something that is often neglected as a runner. I know that's my biggest weakness. So it's something you have to, you can kind of toe the line for a little while, but you have to be very careful with it. And uh, I'm glad to hear, I'm going to uh, release this the week of the New York Marathon. So hopefully anyone listening right now, you'll be able to, um, you know, be thinking about this right now and you'll be able to go, go say hi to Brad if you uh, meet him or if you see him. Um, and so just to finish up, um, you kind of talked about how um, if someone, if you are working with a physical therapist or a physio who does not have the thinking of you can run injury free and they think, you know, you runners are just stupid, you're just going to keep getting injured. Like you talked about trying, you know, keep looking until you do find someone who does believe, you know, running is good and running can be helpful. So I just wanted you to kind of sum that up with why you think that's important and uh, why it's important for you to have the same kind of thoughts aligning with the person you're working with. Yeah, Tina, it's a, it's a, it's a good sort of landing point. It's um, health practitioners uh you know in society no matter what nation wherever the listeners are listening to you know they do hold a you know when it comes to delivering health care which is their you know their chief chief endeavor you know they hold a a level of influence with with their words and their obviously their um recommendations and their advice and it does frustrate me and sadden me for the for the individual that's a recipient sometimes of really what's nothing more than throw away unsubstantiated lines and advice such as you know why don't you just consider not running your body's not meant you know you're not made to run um running will wear out your knees you know the typical myths that you know we we often hear even our friends you know oh gosh you're crazy running you'll wear out your legs and be heading for a knee replacement Mm -hmm. you know the funny thing is science actually now verifies that Running's protective against knee osteoarthritis. You know, there's all sorts of studies I reference in the book around this. And so, Tina, um, if any of the listeners do feel a little bit beaten down and a bit low in spirit because they've had advice about considering putting, you know, hanging their running shoes up, then yes, keep keep looking, keep searching for someone that you know shares the same belief that you know running is possibly. It is possible to be done injury free, and if anyone out there has concerns or they're trying to locate someone, then Tina, I'm happy for obviously our listeners to connect with me um, via social or email address, etc., and I can, you know, help hopefully um, help them point them in the right direction. Yeah. So let's yes, let's finish up with that. What is the best way to get you, or how could people get in touch with you? Yeah. Thanks, Tina. Um, I'm fan across all social platforms. Probably the the easiest one is Twitter at brad underscore beer um there's a a blog that i put out around running on our physiotherapy practice page here in australia called pogo physio p-o-g-o like a pogo stick uh, dot com dot au and uh and you'll find me you know just google google me brad beer physio and all the different contact points will be there okay great and i will put again links to uh the book which once again is you can run pain-free uh, in addition to Brad's uh, website and um, some other ways of contacting him, which you can find at runnersconnect.net forward slash RC80. So, uh, Brad, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. I appreciate your time. Um, and uh, I want to wish you the best of luck at the New York Marathon and to anyone else listening who is racing this weekend. Uh, Runners Connect does have a guide on how to race the New York Marathon, so I would 
check that out and I will put a link to that in the show notes as well but thank you so much for sharing with us and I hope many listeners go out and check it out because uh Brad you've been really helpful with this today oh thanks Tina and uh, all the best to the listeners and um don't let anyone tell you it's not possible to run pain-free great way to end there thank you so much Living in America, I know a lot of people say they love my accent, but I just love the Australian one. And especially as Brad is such a great guy, he's so easy to talk to. I'm wishing him and everyone else racing this weekend at the New York Marathon or anywhere else the best of luck. Let us know how it goes by tweeting at runners underscore connect. We'd love to hear from you. So we have a special treat and it just highlights how genuine Brad is. He has offered to give away five of his books for free to five Runners Connect podcast listeners. You can enter this giveaway by visiting the show notes for the page on runnersconnect.net forward slash rc80. There will be a link to the contest that will run until the 20th of November. We will then pick five winners at random and Brad will send out the books. What a guy. Be sure to check that out. Trust me, this is a book you will want to read. Good luck and I hope you have a great week.